The trick, I mean, it sounds obvious, but the trick is just stay legal. Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. We as people are all connected, emotionally, societally, globally, whichever way you look at it. It's one of the key aspects to Mosaic of China. I want this project to be a weekly reminder of this kind of grand interconnectivity of people and things. So since we're talking about being emotionally tied, why not have an episode about being emotionally tied? The themes of today's show are community, self-expression and consent. As a society, we've been talking more about the concept of consent in recent years, so I wanted to talk to a practitioner for whom consent is so important that getting it wrong might even lead to serious injury. There are certain letters of the alphabet that we skirt around, such as B, and then there's D, and later you might find an S, and then how about M as well. So if you're wondering at any point during today's show, wait, what are we talking about here? Or why didn't you ask this question? I probably did. It's just in the full-length premium version of the episode rather than this regular version. So if you want the full story, let me remind you right from the start to head to the Mosaic of China website for all the details on how to subscribe. With that having been said, I'm going to give you a few seconds to decide whether you would prefer to skip this episode. Okay, do I have your consent to continue? Good, then let's proceed. And you can say no and stop at any time. Thank you so much for coming, Davide. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. For the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to call you by your name, which you're known for, which is Lao Dai. Exactly. And can you explain what Lao Dai means? I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Google it means like wearing. Like to put on glasses, to put on a scarf, it's, yeah, it's to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, people in the community start calling me this, probably for my name. Ah, because it sounds like your real like name. Davide, mm. something like this. And then I stick with it. Yeah. It's easy. It's common to be known as Lao something something, exactly. right? So it shows that you are in some way venerated. I'm glad that somebody <laughs> gave you that name and you didn't give it to yourself. Oh, yes, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. And the character is very complicated, <laughs> so <laughs> I really cannot write it. Well, if there's one Hansa you should learn, I, I guess it should be that one. Come on. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, we are not yet giving away any clues as to what you do, but maybe the next question I ask will be a clue. Tell me, what object did you bring that in some way represents your life here in China? Uh, I think it will be more than a hint. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I brought a seven meter hemp rope. I want to be specific about the material because <laughs> it will be important. Okay. I should ask, why should you be specific about the material? Because basically, I think I'm going straight to the point. <laughs> <laughs> I use it to tie people because I'm a rope artist. We can say bondage artist. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing it's safer to say rope artist than bondage artist. Uh, is more accepted. <laughs> Let's mm. say it is. Got it. Well, I know that because the reason I know you is when I went to the 40th birthday party of a mutual friend of ours, Ciao Alberto, and 
you were doing a show there, which you could call a bondage show, a rope show. Why don't you talk through what I saw at that party? And that's what I do, basically, is um, shibari art. Shibari is the name shibari. From, from Japanese. It's very hard to explain if people didn't see it. It's a mix between art and uh, emotional connection and uh, mutual trust. Where are two people playing around with the ropes? Basically, me tying my model in an emotional way, and you can create this kind of a performance. Right. Yes, that was what I experienced as an audience member. And not expecting it, I was quite shocked. Where to start? I mean, you did say that it needed to be hemp. Is that because that's comfortable on skin, is it? Actually, because it's uncomfortable on skin (laughs) compared to cotton or other material. But the main reason is uh, cotton is more elastic, can stretch more. Hemp uh, stay still and you can create a tension that really restrict people. The thing is born to be uncomfortable. It's uh, about the enjoyment to be restricted, uh, to be submitted, we can say, and the enjoyment to submit and control somebody else, mm. consensual. So if it's comfortable, doesn't really make too much sense for me. <laughs> <because> <laughs> yeah, that's not the point. Yes. <laughs> You said that it was a Japanese art form. What was the name again? Shibari. What is that then? Let's start at the basics. What is Shibari? It's a very complicated question because it's a lot of things together. Yeah. I can tell what is my view of Shibari. So it's basically an erotic art born in Japan. Uh, Shibari means to tie, basically in in Japanese. Uh, But everybody who practices this art develops his own style and his own way to do it. So it's a very personal thing and uh, everybody has his own personal definition. Uh, If you want to hear mine, yeah, (laughs) I focus more on the emotional side of the thing because I think you can achieve the real beauty of the performance only if you share deep emotion and if you find a deep connection with the model. Uh, I started for the artistic side of it because I'm artist also. And uh, I thought at the very beginning it was only about the pattern of the ropes. Right. I discovered through the process and the years that beauty, the beauty I was looking for, is achievable through the emotional connection. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so when you're talking about the rope side, we're talking about the beauty of knots. Is that what you mean? That's a component. Uh, no, is the beauty of uh, the whole final result. The knots, the pattern, the posture, the model expression, mm. and uh, also the feelings that came out from the performance. is more about a dance and the need to dance with passion. And then you see, oh, they're very good. Uh, I'm crying, <laughs> whatever. <Right>. <laughs> and is it supposed to be, in that case, an artwork which is set on a stage and for others to see? Or is it something which was designed to be private? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I believe it start has a private activity. <laughs> mm. And uh, when you start to see the beauty of it, they probably start to shoot it. There are a lot of pictures. And then they start to make a performance. 
I mean, there are a lot of dynamics. It's not only about beautiful, it's also about excitement and uh, tension. Mm. So some people look for it more than the beauty of the pattern. You've been doing this for how long now? I think six years now. So what was your story about how you found out about this? Yes, the very, very first impact was an uh, art exhibition of uh, Araki. Araki. That's an artist? Yes, is a photographer, very erotic pictures back in the 60s, I guess. With ropes? Or? With ropes, yes. Mm. I was really kind of obsessed about this, like super, super into. And I tried to find more about this art. Now you can find a lot. Before was very, very hard. They were very random. Some are not the real things. It's just more like decorating pattern. So it was quite hard. But I started tying my leg, the basic knot. Oh, you tied your own leg? Yes. <laughs> That's how everybody starts. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it's practice, you need to get the muscle memories. Then I remember I, I found in the street this kind of uh, mannequin. And I started to tie the first body pattern on the mannequin. But that wasn't very effective because uh, it's very hard plastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it didn't have any arms or legs. <laughs> it was just the <laughs> chest. Oh, wow. You are a serial killer. <laughs> no, no. It was, it was a plastic <laughs> mannequin. It's useless, basically, use a mannequin because the feeling is completely different. And the tension you can put on a human body is very different. Mm. The rope get tighter in a different way mm-hmm. so i was stuck to improve more i had to find a real person right and i found this girl that is actually still my japanese business partner mm. and she was my first model meeting her start all the process and i was very very lucky it was like winning the lottery so, so she actually could teach you as, as a teacher almost uh, no no she doesn't know any single knot she didn't at the time, now a little. Because when you do shibari, there are two roles, a rigger who ties and the model. A rigger. Okay. Yeah. And the model is doing the model, so doesn't really care about the techniques. Yes. But she taught me a lot in terms of uh, dynamics and connection and uh, how the model feels. At that stage, in my mind, was only an art practice, nothing more. And she's actually the one that opened to me the concept of uh, emotional tie mm-hmm. rather than artistic tie. Got it. And so she could tell you, yeah, this feels good. No, this yeah, is too this, tight. Yeah, more than physical sensations, she was telling me like, I feel this is a little empty. I feel you're focusing more on the knot than me, more the connection side. And then I learn a lot because uh, I say, okay, I'm not tying for my pleasure or for making something like a sculpture. I'm tying for communal pleasure. So Mm. I don't need to focus on the rope. I need to focus on her. It's about how you tie and how you touch and how you give your feelings to the model. You can see a lot of shows. I mean, it's beautiful choreography, but if there's no connection, it's not beautiful emotions coming out. Yes, you said choreography. It makes me think almost like figure skating or like ballroom dancing, right? Where you see two people and they're doing an art form, but there is a sensuality and there is this communication between the two people that you could describe as being emotional. So I can sort of see it through that prism. Yes, it, it is. The dynamics are very similar. I believe 
Doing rope can boost your sexual life. But I believe also going dancing, tango, salsa night. And yes. I believe it's the same dynamic. <laughs> yes. You said before how this was a process where you were learning and your model must have been very patient as you were going through this learning process. Were there any specific mistakes that you made at the beginning? Uh, mistakes, I think, are part of the learning process. As long as you're learning uh, basic stuff, you just do the wrong note and then basically you redo it. In terms of uh, when you get more confident and you try more difficult and dangerous things like suspension, then mistakes usually equal injuries for the model. Mm. So it's better don't try things that you don't really practice a lot, but mistakes still happen. I'm very glad I never been a rush learner in my career, I got just one injuries. The most common injury in, in rope is nerve damage of arms. Uh, so if you press a lot a nerve, you damage it and you cannot use the nerve for a while. Like a, a week or two? or uh, Yes, like mm. a dead hand for some days. And in that situation, like what would have happened? That would have been you doing the wrong knot or a communication issue between you and the model? I think that fault is between both of us. Because uh, my fault was not be that focus and notice something were wrong. And uh, on model mm. side, she didn't let me know some problem was going on. I see. So she was in some discomfort but didn't know that it was a problem. Yes. That's why a model is a role. Mm. It's not just a tool. So models have to learn about their body and improve in that role of model. Yes. So They're learning just like you're learning. Yes, yes. I mean, there's not really school of model. It's more <laughs> about practice. Yeah. But it is, I can tell if I tie somebody that has got tied 50 times compared to somebody tied five times, I can, I can tell. Uh-huh. There's the risk awareness, like everything has like sports. Yes, which then comes down to consent because yes. I'm guessing that at each point there is some kind of communication or do you just get all the consent at the beginning? How does that work? Uh, consent is the, is the main thing because it's not only put rope together a body, it's about touching the body mm. and uh, it's about doing things like pulling hair or grab the neck. You don't know people past, so you don't know if what you do can trigger some traumas uh-huh. or something. So when you tie somebody, you have to talk before. Actually, when you do every SM practice, you have to talk and get the consent. And uh, when you ask somebody for consent, never ask, is there something you don't like? Because they cannot think every possibly option uh-huh. you can go through. So when you ask for consent, just state everything you would like to do uh-huh. and get a yes or no. Can I tie this arm? Can I, yeah. like, can I whisper in your ear? Can I give you soft kiss on the neck? Can I grab? Can I squeeze? I go through all these things. I mean, I'm not that crazy. So I have my like 10, 15 things I, I like doing. So I cover all of these before. Yeah. Of course, you can talk to me something is going wrong or if there are some problem. And I also maybe slide the hand and see the reaction. If you see it's uncomfortable, ah. just, just stop. If it's like comfort yes. and excitement, you can go next step. Yes. I mean, this is the thing about consent. People who 
let's say men here, right? Men who think of this idea as, oh, it's not sexy when you're stopping what you're doing and you're asking things and making sure. Like, I think it is sexy. <laughs> uh, it is. What I do, I like uh, domination and submission plays. That also has to be very consensual. Mm. I mix the consensual questions with play questions, like, uh, I'm going to do this. I know you like, is it? Something like this. And you are free to say no. If they say, please, please do it. Or he said, no, sir. Yes, I get it. It's part of <laughs> the like, play. Yeah, camouflage, the, the yes. consent. The thing is, in my position that I do this, like also, let's say professionally, it happens a lot that complete stranger ask me to get tie in public or privately. So my risk awareness <laughs> is very high. Yeah, so talk me through then. How would you do your art in that situation versus someone who, let's say, you've worked with for many years? Uh, when I do sessions, some people pay me to get tied. Yeah. Those are called sessions. I'm really clear at the beginning. I cover all these talks and I'm very safe. I don't do too much, even if maybe I want. Yeah. I do also a little test that they don't realize is a test because it's uh, in my beginning routine when I tie somebody. I usually sit behind them and I push my fist against their chest toward me. If they abandon themselves completely, I can understand they're more submissive. Mm -hmm. If they push against, I can understand they're not very comfortable, they don't trust me. Oh. So I change the flow of the rope based on these little yes. things. And also I, I squeeze very hard the rope that allows me to understand the level of pain they can afford. And then I understand what I can do and what I cannot do. Yes, this is what comes from experience, right? Yeah. If you are a new model, it might be good to try and find a more experienced rigger or like is it actually nicer for inexperienced riggers and models to learn together? It depends what you want to achieve. If you're a couple and you want to achieve connection, me tying her doesn't really make sense. It's better he learn. Right. Is that what you also do? You help couples to do this together? Yes, but we need also to keep it legal. What do you mean by that? Uh, because uh, there's this law in China, more than two people naked in one room is uh, illegal. Oh, even in the privacy of your own yes, home? Yes, yes. Free oh. sums are illegal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Noted. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you were saying about your main model. She was well connected with the scene in Japan. Why don't we talk then about China? We're here in China. You've been doing this now personally and professionally for a few years. So how did that happen for you here in China? Every night in Japan, there's a performance or there is a saloon. There's a lot of legal activities without breaking any law. And then I see the same activities are happening in the world. And then I, I question myself, why nothing happening in China? And I know the answer, actually, <laughs> because it's more restrictive. But it's about setting the line. And then when you set the line, you can do everything below that line. I see. The line in China is lower than Japan or lower than Europe. But it's just about that. So I came back and I started to inform myself about communities in China. I found a guy and uh, became friends with him. So I said, let's try to do a party. <laughs> so basically the next month after that, we made the first public rope event in China. Me and this guy, 2017 at Roxy, 
And uh, everybody was telling me, why well, you do this? Nobody will come. <laughs> but we did, and uh, 40 people came. And uh, it was quite good, some easy suspension. And then I start to do it every month. People start to come more and more, and uh, every part of the community, like cross-dresser, latex, canine, <laughs> oh. everything. Yes. The trick, I mean, it sounds obvious, but the trick is just stay legal. We are teaching rope art. We set the line and we don't go over deadline. So no nudity, no real pain, not yeah. no scars. And we build basically the public community from that. I'm still learning. You never stop to learning. So I'm still going to Japan to meet masters. But it's very expensive. So then I got this uh, other idea after a while. Rather than go there and pay for lesson, what if I invite master in China? Yes, that's a win-win. <laughs> yes. So I did that thanks to my model that now became my business partner at this right. stage. Japanese trust Japanese. So we were able to invite very big names and uh, make the first ever workshop from Japanese people in China. Actually, everybody who was interested in rope travel from their city to my house. From all over China? Kind of. From Tianjin, Changsha, Shenzhen. Because it's, uh, it's a very unique opportunity. Yes. As uh, otherwise, you have to go to Japan and pay much more. So they came to my workshop and they start to spread the knowledge in their own cities. So more community were grow and uh, they start to, I say being inspired. I don't want to say copy. <laughs> they start to be inspired by my activities and they start to make rope party public. But they start to inviting people from Japan, from Europe to teach their workshop. And it was quite surprising and they get some success before COVID. COVID stopped everything mm. mostly. Now is compared to just five years ago, is completely different acceptance. If you look for it, every week in Shanghai there's a workshop. Really? There are different I'm not the only one. Different teacher, they're teaching their way. Somebody more spiritual, somebody more traditional. In the yoga studio start to have their own rope art schedule. You're kidding. No, that's no, true. true. Oh, yoga studio are, are opening to, to get some workshop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, if you think silk yoga, aerial yoga, oh. is technically is not that different. It's interesting. Technically. Yeah. How then is your status in China now? Like, are you well known here? Yeah, it's also surprising. There are people that don't even know my face that come to my event and uh, somebody called me Laodai and then suddenly everybody realized I am and they start to come asking for pictures <laughs> and for sharing with mm. And uh, actually now I'm going on tour. Really? <laughs> yes, I go Shenzhen, Changsha and Chengdu. To do these workshops, right? Workshop, yes, and performance. Let me end this part of the conversation by going more into your personal story again. How has this affected you in terms of your own sexuality? In my experience, I really tie a lot of different people, men and women, and they learn my reaction to different people. And they learn there is a rope love that is different than romantic love with the partner. Uh, how I explain this usually is uh, you have to think like the different love you experience. In English, you use one word. The love to your mother is different, but you still call it love. Mm -hmm. Love towards your friends is another kind of love. 
towards your sexual partner or life partner is another kind of love. So there's also the rope love. How do you talk about that with your potential romantic partners? I'm very honest because it cut a lot of troubles. Yes. So basically, when I meet somebody, it's the third answer I give, like, what's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? (laughs) I say it now. (laughs) Yes. But then don't you scare people off very quickly? I do. do. I do. But it's easier because if they find out after, it will be much hard to explain. And uh, actually say it honestly and uh, kindly, it makes sound like more normal Mm. than what they probably imagine. They don't feel it's something I want to keep hidden or I am ashamed to tell. It is interesting. I mean, I don't know what the right answer would be because you immediately talk about your fetish, your kink in the first date. On the third question, you say, I might then judge you as like, oh, this is someone who doesn't have the right kind of boundaries, doesn't really know how to talk in a natural way. Like, why should you bomb me with that information too soon? You know, because it could be a situation where I get to know you, I like you. And then on the fifth date, you realize, oh, this guy is into philosophy or this this guy is into skateboarding. It could be like something a little less upfront, right? Um, it happened that I shock people and they judge very, very hard. I, honestly, I don't say it. I'm just answering questions. <laughs> <laughs> when they tell me, so what you do for living or what else you do, that will be lying. <laughs> yeah, because this is your full-time gig really now. It, it kind of, yes. <laughs> this is it. It would be weird to not mention it. Yes. Yes. So how do you define yourself now? I'm actually in a stage that I'm not doing it for sexual reason. So I can see a potential partner that doesn't like rope. Now I'm more about quality. (laughs) If I think about my status of kink, I can define myself like a care dom. Care dom. Yes, it's a thing. (laughs) So basically dom means the dominant Mm. part. But basically I do that to serve the person I mm. submit. So technically I take control, but to give them enjoyment, I like to give uh, pleasure to yeah. people. Yeah, this is a nice way to end the conversation, I think, because when people think about certain kinks and certain fetishes, and rope is one of them, and it could be leather, it could be rubber, like they always have this scary image. You know, it's intimidating. I mean, you look at the ropes and it is intimidating. But then talking to you, you do get the sensuality. You do get the ideas that we're talking about. It's about empathy. It's about empowerment. It's about that connection between you and the other person, right? Uh, It's true. Honestly, I have to say, most of the best people I meet are in the King community. They really care about respect and trust. And they don't have this social limit. So it's easier to find good people in the king community Mm. than out. Of course, there are still like predatory people that do like consent breaking behavior. But for the majority are very nice people. I will trust more uh, somebody dressed in latex than somebody dressed with a tie. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. And I'm glad you also mentioned the dangers too. I think everyone needs to be open-eyed about that. Yes. It's not a world of rainbows and marshmallows. No, no, no. First thing, very first thing, consent. There is a very nice video. It's like consent is like a cup of tea. I've seen it. Yeah. If I can post that somehow, I will as part of this episode. Thanks so much, Laudai. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We are going to move to part two. Okay. 
Okay. Now we move on to the 10 questions. Are you nervous about these? No. <laughs> okay. Question one, which comes from Shanghai Daily. What is your favorite China-related fact? Uh, I really like watching people dancing in the park. Oh, right. That's cool. <laughs> it's very genuine that maybe you have hard life, hard work, and then you just go dancing with other people and enjoy, and then you go home. It's very nice activity. For years, I believe there was sort of a competition, like Olympics. Oh. <laughs> yeah. They made team and they <laughs> challenged at the end of the year. <laughs> There might be. I don't even know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's only exercising. Nice. Next question, which comes from Rosetta Stone. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? It's one of the first things I learned. I like bukuchi. Oh, bukuchi. It's, you're welcome. Because in Italian, you say bocuccia when you do like the kiss shape of the mouth. <laughs> so bukuchi stick in my mouth. So it sounds like that. <laughs> yes, bukuchi. Bukuchi bukuchi. Yes. <laughs> Classic. Question three, which comes from Naked Retreats. What's your favorite destination within China? I travel a little. I like place without too many people. Mm. So I, I, I've been impressed by Zhangjiajie. Zhangjiajie. Zhangjiajie because it's very unique. Seems fake, like movie set. Well, it's avatar. famously, yeah. yeah. They shoot Avatar for, for a reason, so they save money <laughs> rather than build <laughs> a planet. Okay, next question. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? I think I will miss, if you have an idea, you can do it and then can be regulated afterwards. Yes. <laughs> These are really like... That's exactly how it works, right? Because people think it's just the rules. But you can do quite a lot until you kind of hit your head on the rules, right? Yes, yes. I come from Italy that is one of the worst countries in that field. There's a lot of red tape in Italy. Yes, yes. And the worst thing... The thing that you would miss the least, yes. I don't want to be offensive. I really hate when people chew very loudly. <laughs> Yes. Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I usually don't judge anything of people's behavior. This, I know it's a small thing, but it really annoys me. It's, it's automatic annoyment. I find it very hard. They can be the other side of yes, the restaurant. Yes, yes. It's, it's, I, I really hate it. I think it's just impatient white men. Mm, maybe. <laughs> Next question. Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? No. <laughs> I would say no. I actually did. Actually, I remember this right now. People start working with the robot dog. I see already four people. Oh. It's a robot dog and they work a robot dog. So there's no sense in anything. <laughs> Next question, which comes from Smart Shanghai. Where is your favorite place to go out, to eat or drink or just hang out? Mokkos. You know Mokkos? No. Mokkos. M-O-K-K-O-S. There are two. One is on the road and one is on the compound. I like the one in the compound. It's a kind of Japanese concept bar. You can only order bottles and then they save your bottle. And if you go after five years, your bottle is still there with your name. And if you finish that bottle, they ask you if you want a new bottle or if you want to refill that bottle. And then you can keep the exactly same bottles for years. And every time you refill, they give a little badge. So there are these very ancient bottles full of badges and you see people get drunk a lot. Yes. I, I like this. And it's very quiet. 
Yes, you have these places in Japan a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it's yes. usually whiskey bars. I've never heard of that here yet. Yes, Mokos. Okay. I'll check it out. But it sounds like you can't just go in there casually. You have to be like a... No, you can, you can, you can. Okay. Thank you. You see, you can live in a place for eight years and still be learning new things like this. I presume it's been around for a while. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. What is the best or worst purchase you made in China? Uh, the best purchase is uh, this jar that purifies tap water. Ah. That changed my life because I was upset so many times when you finish your bottle of water and you're still thirsty and you have to go out <laughs> and buy the water. You're saying it's a jar, so hang it's on. It's a jar with a filter. You just fill it with water and oh, purify okay. it. The filter is inside. Yes. Got it. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? I sent to you. It's <laughs> okay, what's going on here? Can you describe this? <laughs> I don't know if there is a meaning, but I found it very fun. <laughs> So there's Jesus try to jump in the pool and cannot because <laughs> Jesus walk on water. And then there's this other guy from another famous painting that looks surprised, I guess. <laughs> I love this. I've never seen it. I guess only an Italian would send this. Maybe. Probably came from other Italians. Thank you. Next question. What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? Uh, I'm quite upset uh, with KTV in China because they don't have Italian songs. Not many, right? I've heard Volare. Oh, yes. But that <laughs> makes me more upset. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I went out with some Italians one time and we literally had to have that three times. Because, no, no. Oh. no. I, I will never <laughs> sing that because it's stereotypical. So I sing very few songs. One is Bohemian Rhapsody. I go for it. Oh, God. Then I sing <laughs> Give a Little Bit. Give a Little Bit, that yes, one. Yes, exactly. I basically sing two songs. There's not even a third. <laughs> Maybe Common People by Pulp. Oh, now that speaks to me. Are we the same age? How old are you? 42. I'm 44, yeah. yeah. Next week is my birthday. Oh, tante aguri. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was my generation. Yeah, but you know, it's, I'm not English, so I focus to read too much. I, I don't focus to enjoy. Oh. I, in Italian, I can express more craziness. Well, this is a problem with common people because there's a lot of words. Yeah, but that I know. I know I memorized that. <laughs> and finally, what or who is your biggest source of inspiration in China? I have a couple of friends that inspire me and motivated me to get better. But some people give me inspiration not to be like that. <laughs> Inverse inspiration. People that are happy with very material things. So when I see these people, I'm glad I did this path. Even though it's more difficult. Yes, yes. I, I quit my job. It's struggling, but I, I'm more happy. I look forward to seeing how things progress in the future for you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. <laughs> well, it was enlightening. And I hope that other people listening would have also experienced the same thing. Before you leave, out of everyone you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview in the next season of Mosaic of China? So there's my friend, Shreni. She's uh, American from India. And uh, she's very spiritual. And she started this career of uh, helping people by breathwork. Breathwork? Breathing it, properly. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like mm. uh, your emotions and your state is very influenced by your breathing. I understand that completely. I feel like I have a very shallow breathing pattern. So I'm looking forward to meeting Shreni. Yes. <laughs> She's the best. 
Well, thank you so much, Lao Dai. Thank you. Well, I did it. I managed to finish off the massive editing job that was this episode. There's an extra 20 minutes of Lao Dai's story available on the premium version of the show. Head to the website to subscribe. Even finding and editing clips for you to hear was a monumental effort this week, but here's what I managed to include. Then I see oh, this thing can have a lot of potential. And then we broke up for completely different reason. <laughs> it's like, what can no one hear this? How can this be happening? Going to that festival helped me to quit the job. Uh-huh. If you're stick with one master, he doesn't allow you to learn different style. Yes. The Western view of it against the Japanese reality. Trying to imbue more meaning onto something than actually there is, right? Yes. <laughs> I found out to be like under the power of the rope losing control quite easily and uh, maybe doing things that can break a relationship. It's called uh, omosubi, single column tie. A single column tie. Yes, the arm or the leg should be a column. Genuine expressions can be pain or can be struggle or happiness. A complete failure. <laughs> they say, why are you crazy? Why you ask me this? So like when you tie your shoes, you never think, oh, I need to put this under this and then make a loop and then pull. You don't want to shock someone, right? This is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> Actually surprise somebody with something like that. It can be very fluid. Actually, it's more women time men in China. <laughs> mm. Thanks once again to Lao Dai for sharing his story with us. I've included a selection of photos on the website and on social media, so do a search for Mosaic of China or Oscology on all the usual platforms, both in China and internationally, and you should find them there. For obvious reasons, we focused our conversation very much on the performance art side of his life. But when it comes to the lifestyle and the philosophy behind this esoteric art form, the Davide behind the Lao Dai, there's something all of us can take away in terms of making us think about how we relate to and communicate with our most intimate partners. And making us think is what art's all about after all, which is why I try to include artists of all description in the Mosaic of China. If you want to hear similar episodes that cover big ideas in the guise of performance art in China, then take a listen in particular to Coco Santi, the drag artist from Season 2, Episode 5, or Björn Dalman, the professional clown from Season 2, Episode 17, or Zhang Yuan, the performance art curator from Season 2, Episode 7. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell. These days, I always include at least one catch-up conversation from a previous episode after the closing music, and today is no exception. You will hear from the podcaster Yang Yi from Season 1, Episode 21. But you will notice that it's quite short. That's because when Yang Yi and I caught up, we spoke a lot about his experience appearing as a guest on This American Life earlier in the year. I didn't want this story to compete with Lao Dai's story, so I've taken that part out and made it into its own premium-only mini-sode. I'll be releasing that on Friday, so there's yet another reason that you really should be subscribed by now. And we'll be back with another full episode from Season 3 next week. Hey, Yang Yi. Hey, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. But out of everyone from season one, which is now two seasons ago, yes, I think I have seen you probably the most. Oh, really? <laughs> and there is an obvious reason for that because I have been using your studio to, oh, yeah. <laughs> to record season three. Yes, yes. Um, so I want to say officially thank you so much for your help in getting me set up for season three. I lost access to my previous studio and I was asking around, and then you just said one day, hey, just use my studio. And I'm like, <laughs> perfect. I love you. So you're welcome. Thank you, man. I appreciate that very much. You. You have had many more changes since yes. season one. We did a catch up in season two. Mm. And at that point, you had already quit your broadcasting job and you had gone full time in your podcasting career. Yes. You had 11 podcasts. So what is the situation with your company today? <laughs> the original podcast that now is 20. <laughs> 20. <laughs> yes. And with another 20 branded podcasts, help the company to produce their show. Right. Yeah. So do you offer the editing support, the production support? Consulting support, because they have no audio strategy. Maybe they were very familiar with TikTok or social media, but they don't know audio. So the first thing is consulting. Audio is a very fresh thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in many people's mind, when they talk about audio, the first thing come to their mind is music. And then it's audiobook. And then it's education. Mm. So what is podcast? For them, maybe they think, oh, it's a personal radio station or audio blog. They didn't have the sense. I need to tell them podcast is a show. And the show is not personal. It's a show. Mm. <laughs> Just like you watch on television. It means well-educated tier, younger generation, mm. the people who live in the big cities active in business, in consuming, something like that. So I need to, you know, draw a picture. And now it is not the mass communication era. People is, you know, living in a very small group. Yeah. So you need to find your target audience yes. and match them very efficiently. Well, yeah. that's always been my problem with Mosaic of China because <laughs> I can't focus in on one particular thing. That's my uh, problem. But it is a diverse place. And that makes me ask you then. So where do you see the trends in podcasting right now? Okay, for original shows and branded podcasts is very different. So for the branded podcast, I would tell my client the key word is differentiate. You need to do something separate from another shows mm. and show the things you're really good at. Podcast listeners, they think, oh, you are a expert mm. of this field. They will trust you. And they will become your listeners, even they didn't know this field before. And in terms of your shows, then, why would it be different? You obviously need to differentiate your shows too, no? Yes, but for original shows, maybe we have five to ten different topics or genres we could do. So we need to choose. Mm. So we need to research the marketing. Yes. We need to, you know, put the shows in that space. Mm. Well, I am sure next time we catch up, you will have more and more and more. <laughs> Are you going to do an English language podcast at some point? Oh, yes. Maybe I will invite you to contribute for some <laughs> stories, something like that. Very good. Yes. I am sure <laughs> when you do it, it will be great. I'm sure it'll be better than mine as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I wish you luck. 
Thank you so much for being part of this project. You were the co-organizer of the first PodFest, uh-huh. which was a, a conference where I met you and many other podcasting yeah. people in Shanghai. And you've really been with me in my journey since that day. And I hope that we will continue to stay in touch. Yes, of course. Thank you.